If you have your Bibles, grab them. We're going to go to Ezra 10. We're going to finish up our time in Ezra this morning before we move into Nehemiah beginning next week. So it's Ezra 10. If you're new here uh, and you're on a device, you can go to the ESV. Um, If I had my choice, and I don't, um, whether you are on a device or in one of these paper books that we call a Bible, I would prefer that you had one of the paper versions Perfectly okay if you have a device. The reason why I, pre- and I'm trying to dad you all right now, but, um, but, but I prefer the paper version because if we can just even spend one hour on a Sunday morning just putting our devices off to the side, I know I need to do that. So if I'm on a device and, I, and, and my intentions are good, I got ESV, I got Ezra up on that thing, uh, I'm, I'm probably going to check Twitter. I'm going to see what's going on on the gram. Um, you know, I'm probably going to order something on Prime. You know, those things are going to happen. Um, if, I, if I don't put my device away, you guys probably have more discipline than me, but I doubt that. Um, so we have Bibles in the back. So if you ever come in, you're like, man, I, you know, I don't have a Bible. I don't even know how to get a Bible. Well, we've taken care of that for you. Bibles are in the back on the shelf. They're free. Grab one, keep it forever. And then you have that. We would love for you uh, to do that. Ezra 10. Well, as a pastor, I get to do some really strange things. This job brings me into some you know, strange uh, moments. It brings me to some strange places. And one of the things that I get to do is I get to, to sit down with people. This is not exactly strange, but I get to sit down with people um, when they are uh, sort of in, embattled in moments where they're trying to come to some sort of reconciliation. Maybe um, people have wronged each other or maybe somebody has been wronged or they've wronged somebody. And what happens a lot of times is you'll, you'll sit down with people and they will be in a moment where some repentance is necessary. Reconciliation is what you're pushing for, what you're aiming for. So as a pastor, I'm, I'm leading them down that path, right? I can't make them go to the pond and, and drink, but I can lead them down that path. One of the things that will come up in these moments is you'll have people say, I'm sorry, You'll get that coming out of people's mouths. You'll get what feels like, you know, a very brokenhearted kind of um, an emotion that comes out, which then forms around the lips to say, I'm sorry, but then time passes. And as time passes, what you find is that nothing actually changes. There has been no change in behavior. And so... One of the questions I want to ask this morning is this, is, is it enough to say sorry, right? Is it enough to just say that we're sorry? We say things like that. And in fact, we have a way of saying things in the realm of sorriness that are almost kind of passive aggressive, right? We say things like, I'm sorry, but... And it's funny that we get through the word sorry really quick and we hold out the word but, right? Or I'm sorry if you feel this way. And what we're really saying is, is I really have no plans to show you that my sorrow is genuine. And what we've learned as we dove in last week to Ezra, who is the scribe, this priest that has taken a second wave of Israelites back to the land so that he can teach them God's word and they can uh, just start, uh, you know, reconnecting with God as a nation who is living under his laws and under his grace and under his mercy. And what we see as we see Ezra realizing that while he was gone, 
the, the nation was embroiled in these practices of intermarrying other nations that God had forbid them to, to intermarry with, we find that he goes into this deep state of confession, right? And what we know about confession, which is this, this verbal assent that what we've done is wrong against God, what we know about confession is that confession without repentance, those two things are different. We're going to find that out. It's just lip service, right? It's lip service because repentance is about turning from those things that are both displeasing to the Lord and then, of course, harmful to other people. Because anything we do that displeases the Lord is eventually just going to be harmful for, for our neighbors, for our friends, for our family, for the people around us. Confession without repentance illustrates a heart that is not interested in changing as much as it's sorry about getting caught a lot of times or called out. You know, we hear lines like, talk is cheap, right? You know, talk is cheap. I need more than just talk. I need more than just good intentions. You guys have probably heard the phrase, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Hey, I want to do that. I feel like that's the right thing. I'm acknowledging that there's something I need to do. But then when we don't do it, it just means that our words ring hollow, right? And of course, it's not that words don't have meaning. It's that they're meaningless if they're not followed by, by action. So let's talk a little bit about what we mean when we say repentance. What, what is Christian repentance. Maybe you just don't know that. We use that word. It's one of those Bible-y words. It's one of those churchy words that just gets thrown out a lot, especially around here. And maybe you just don't even know uh, what it is. This is how Sam Storms, he's a pastor out of Oklahoma, and he's an author. He's a great guy. This is how he defined uh, Christian repentance. He said, true Christian repentance involves heartfelt conviction of sin, a contrition over the offense to God, a turning away from the sinful way of life and then a turning towards a God-honoring way of life. So, so it's a process, right? Confession is the beginning of a process that says, I have sinned against God and, and I am feeling a sense of weight, of remorse over that truth. So that's where it begins. It begins with that acknowledgement, but it just doesn't, it doesn't end there. It moves into steps that are action steps that actually reflect the remorse that we feel in how we've sinned against God and others. Last week we saw Ezra the priest go into this, this, this confessional time, right? Remember, he, he literally tore his clothing when he found out that a lot of the leaders and a lot of the priests that had gone back to Jerusalem before he did started intermarrying um, with women that God had forbid them to marry. So uh, he literally tears his clothing. That was an act uh, back in that time of somebody who was acknowledging their sin before God. He pulled out his hair, it says. It says he sat appalled because the Israelites had given themselves over to potential idol worship, which is what the problem was by intermarrying with other nations that didn't worship God. And we'll, un we'll unpack what that means for us today here in a little bit. But Ezra, Ezra was, was taken back. It flattened him. He laid down flat before the Lord, acknowledging what it is that they had done. He understood the gravity. He understood the holiness and the majesty of, of God. 
So Ezra cried out to God. If you look back in chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, it said, it says, Oh my God, I am ashamed, and I blush to lift my face to you. And then it says in verse 10 of chapter 9, Oh now, O God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. And then you move up to verses 13, and he, he says, After all the guilt that has come upon us for evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us even less, he said, than our iniquities deserve and have given us such a remnant as this. So Ezra goes before the Lord confessing what they have done, confessing who God is and how gracious and merciful he's been to them despite how they have treated him. So after all of this, after all this incredibly just sorrowful and angst-filled confession, what happens next? Well, Ezra chapter 10 is what happens next. So let me just pick up with verse 1. And it says this, While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all those wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Verse 5, then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said, so they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehonanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem and that if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and of the elders, uh, all his property should be forfeited and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month, and on the 20th day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Verse 11, now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open. Nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times and with them, the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tilvah, opposed this. And Meshulam and Shebatha, the Levite, supported them. Then the returned exiles 
did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter, and by the first day of the month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. How do the Israelites respond to Ezra when their sin had been brought to their attention? That's what we want to unpack here for the next few minutes. And then how should we as the church respond when our sin has been surfaced to us? When we realize the weight of what we have done as we stand before a holy God and we begin to see God's glory and holiness and majesty, when we begin to take as seriously our sin as Ezra the priest did, as the people of Israel did when Ezra brought that to their attention. So how do the Israelites respond? Well, the first thing they do is they respond with inner remorse. They respond with inner remorse. It says that they weeped bitterly. And weeping bitterly was a sign of remorse. It was a sign of understanding the gravity and the graveness of your sin before God. It's a sign that the people understand what it is that they had done. And it caused them to be remorseful toward the Lord. We remember the Apostle Peter when he denied Jesus after assuring Jesus hours before that he would do just the opposite. I will die for you, Lord. No, Peter, actually, he well actually, Peter, in, in the most holy, righteous way possible. And he said, actually, what's going to happen is you're going to deny me three times before the, uh, before the crow cries. And that's what he did, right? And in Luke 22, it says, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And it said that he went out and he wept bitterly. Peter was remorseful. He, he wasn't just ashamed that Jesus caught him. He loved Jesus. There was a difference. It was different from Judas, right? Judas realized he had betrayed Jesus and he went and ended his life. Why? Because he didn't believe that forgiveness was an option. Judas didn't have that relationship with Jesus that Peter had. We can think that the worst thing that can happen is feeling shame for our sin and having the appropriate response before God. But shame for our sin is one of the ways we know that we are authentically God's people. Do you guys understand that? Having that shame for our sin, that remorse, that sort of that sense of guttedness over the things that we do, it's one of the signs that we are authentically God's people. If you know Jesus, you love Jesus. And if you love Jesus... Your heart breaks you more than even your sin does, right? Peter's heart was broken like Ezra's before Jesus, whereas Judas's sin broke him because he had no heart for Jesus. You see the qualifier there? You see the, you see the difference there? You see the, the, the radical change that happens in your heart once you have been saved and the Holy Spirit now inhabits your heart, 
you are going to feel something. Something has been created and established inside of you that wasn't there before, which is you see a holy God who created the earth, who did all of this out of his love for you and the flourishing of your life. And you begin to see your sin. You begin to see sort of this cosmic treason, as R.C. Sproul used to say, that our sin is. And you begin to see what an affront and what a betrayal and what a rebellion it is against God. Now again, do we feel, do we feel the weight of that every minute of every day? Sadly, we don't. But it's there. It's there for those who know Jesus and love Jesus. Weeping bitterly over sin is the sign of a heart that beats for Jesus. This was the first sign that the Israelites were truly repentant. We have broken faith with our God, Shechaniah said to Ezra. But you know what we know too is that this sense of brokenheartedness and this bitter weeping It's this first step towards hope for us. So even as we're talking about this and you're like thinking, oh my gosh, this this sounds like just this, this long and painful and exposing and vulnerable process. It is. But it's also the first step towards a reconciling hope that we have with God. It leads to hope. What was on the horizon for Peter after he wept bitterly before the Lord And his brokenness was a moment. It's a moment that we see happen at the end of John chapter 21 when Jesus welcomes Peter to swim across the shore and reassures Peter that despite his denial of Jesus, there was was a deep love there for Jesus. And Jesus encourages him and says, hey, hey, Peter, it's okay. You're going to live again in hope. You are going to do my work. You are going to feed my sheep. We want to avoid the pain of bitter weeping. But without weeping, there's no joy that comes in the morning, as the Psalms tell us. And maybe this level of remorse, it just feels horrible when you contemplate it. It just feels like opening up a can of worms from the past or the present or something that you don't want to engage in, something that you don't want to deal with. Because it's going to unpack other things in your life that have been lying dormant and that have just been, been continued to be buried in your life. And yet, your sadness over your sin before God tells you something of God's presence inside of you. It tells you something of the love and the grace and the mercy that is waiting for you. When Jesus looked at Peter after that rooster crowed, there was love in his eyes. He already knew Peter was going to do it. Don't think there's a sin, you're going to sin, that God is going to go, didn't see that one coming. God wouldn't be God if that was possible. So when we come to God weeping bitterly over our sins, it's for sins that he already saw. It's sins that he already knew were going to happen. That bitterness, that weeping, that remorse that's coming out of you is flowing into a heart that has already received you. Man, that's huge. That's huge. It was for Peter. It was for Ezra. 
It was for the people of Israel, by the way, who were still God's chosen people. But they needed to respond. They needed to respond. And they responded with inner remorse by weeping bitterly. And then secondly, they responded with decisive action. It says that they took an oath. It said that they made a covenant with God, that they were going to do the thing, reverse the thing that they felt remorse for. They make a covenant to put away the wives and children according to Ezra's counsel. They take an oath. They say, we will make things right by reestablishing our covenant with the Lord to obey his commands. They look at Ezra and they say, let it be done. Be strong. We know leading an entire nation into repentance, confession and repentance, is a huge thing. Like, it's not the thing you want to do, Ezra. It's not the thing I want to do as a pastor. You know what? You know what sounds great today? Let's, uh, let's go do some repenting. That sounds sweet. How necessary, though, is it? How necessary is it for us, though, to be a confessing and a repenting church? So we see this process of confession and repentance, which includes acknowledging your sin, being heartbroken over your sin, and then saying this, I will turn from my sin. And for a minute here, when you get to verse 13, it almost sounds like they're stalling a little bit, right? But in reality, when they say, hold on, it's raining it's not only raining outside, it's raining in our hearts, right, is what they're saying. But they're saying this thing can't happen fast. They're so serious about what's going on in their repentance that they want the process to be done correctly. So even there's a swiftness to repent, which there should be, but there's also a process with it, which doesn't allow you just to step through it and get through it as quick as you can so that we can just move on and move on. So that almost like we're just lightly glazing over what happened. Now that rain that was coming down was a metaphor, right? And sometimes it just rains and rains and it needs to rain. And that rain has an effect on the landscape and on the environment. But that rain of repentance has an effect on our hearts as well. We need to give it a minute, man. The church is too fast. We just go too fast because we're uncomfortable. I don't like being uncomfortable either, but we're too fast. It just makes me think about how we are not expedient to do things that need to be done, but then when we do them, we are too expedient to get past them and through them, right? So we procrastinate in some ways. We procrastinate. Procrastination is kind of our national language, isn't it? You know? And that pattern is kind of carried over to it to everything, right? We'll take a step in the right direction and then we pause and then we stop when we should be a little more swift in how we carry things out. That's not what was happening here with the Israelites. This was part of the process. They were getting around to it, which is one of our phrases, right? I'll get around to it. I'll get around, you know, I'll get it. Getting around to it is fine when we're talking about the dishes, right? It's fine when we talk about laundry, you know, it's fine when we talk about cleaning out the garage. I'll get around to it. But when it comes to the decision to turn away from sin, we are letting spiritual mold continue to spread when we don't enter into the process. The Israelites were serious about the task that Ezra set before them. Look what it says in 11 and 12. Now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. 
separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, it is so, we must do as you said. And then in verse 16, it says, then the returned exiles did so. They took decisive action. They kept their oath. They put away their wives. They offered a ram for their guilt offering before the Lord. And Ezra provides this long list of men who were guilty of intermarriage that I'm going to go ahead and read two or three times through just for fun. I'm kidding. Um, I'm not going to do that. But I do want to pause right here because this, this, this sort of, this causes us to ask the question, um, okay, well, you know, what does this mean for us today, right? Um, you know, as, uh, as Tom Brome pointed out before the, before the sermon today, he said, are you going to address that? Because if not, you know, what are we going to do? Just all go home and bag our spouse if we're having a bad day and we're not getting along. And I said, that's exactly what it means, Tom. I said, that's not what it means, obviously. Um, but I want to pause there because there are, are people in the church all over the world that are married to unbelievers, right? Um, and should they just up and leave these people? Is this what this passage is telling us? If we read this passage this way, would that be the correct interpretation of it? Well, the answer, of course, is no, because by the time we get to the New Testament and a new covenant has been established by Jesus Christ for the church, we read in books like 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul saying, no, actually, if you are married to somebody who, who is an unbeliever, whatever the circumstances was that got you there, um, if they are willing to stay with you, um, then, then actually you're, you're instructed to stay with them. It's a little bit of a different scenario. What we have here back in the Old Testament is we have a nation whose ruler was God. And he had specific instructions for them as a nation ruled uh, exclusively by God about how to keep... Um, how to keep themselves pure before the Lord. So this was one of the instructions that God exclusively had for the nation of Israel. Today, it would be a little bit different for us because we are, we are not the nation of Israel um, that is being ruled exclusively as a theocracy by, by God alone. So a little bit different for the church. I want to clear that up because that could lead us into some uh, confusion. But here, back to repentance, okay? Repentance is something that begins in the head. This is what we're seeing. It goes to the heart, but it must be completed with our hands. We need to understand the magnitude of our sin before the Lord. Dr. Diane Landberg says this. Listen to this. Small choices and hidden habits of the heart matter. If we practice long enough, listen to this, the unthinkable becomes doable. And the logical choice and devastation of our inner cyclones can be massive. We end up destroying ourselves, our families, our institutions, even our countries. Our sin should never surprise us since it always springs from the hidden habits of the heart. No wonder, she says, that our God, whose habits are holy, tells us that he desires truth in the hidden places. So what's happening here with the Israelites is that these things that really weren't even that hidden... You know, uh, as they're marrying these wives, these are not acts that are incredibly hidden. But sin tends to be something that as we put it into practice, it becomes incorporated into our lives in a way that we stop noticing. Until somebody surfaces it. And until somebody calls it out. So here's a question for us. Is what unthinkable thing has become doable in your life? What unthinkable thing and this was unthinkable to the Israelites, has become doable in your life. 
What truth needs to be surfaced in the hidden places of your heart? What needs to be exposed in order to cause you and me to weep bitterly? For you and me to make a decision to turn away from our sin and then take the necessary steps to eliminate the spiritual mold that is growing inside of us and slowly killing us and the people around us. If only sin just affected us. It just doesn't. It affects everybody around us because our hidden habits become commonplace. Our hidden habits form the person that we are, that people experience, that they receive, right? And in fact, what's so insidious about our sin is that they can, our sins can turn into something that Jerry Bridges calls respectable sins. Sins that we just kind of go, you know, we throw a you know on it, right? Like, don't we all? Right, those, those types of answers that we, that we kind of throw at stuff to sort of, you know, deflect. Jerry Bridges says that the root of all of our sin is ungodliness, which he defines as living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God or of God's will or of God's glory or of one's dependence on God. That's the root of our sin here, according to Jerry Bridges. It's ungodliness. That's the foundation. I've no thought of God. I've no thought about what God's will is. I've no thought about the glory of God that's at stake in my sin. I've no thought of my dependence on God. And then Jerry goes on to, to tell, if you, you know, if you know him like I do, you call him Jerry. I'm kidding, I never, know, never knew him. But um, he, uh, I say Jerry like I know him. But he also talks about these other sins that are respectable sins. He talks about discontentment being a respectable sin, right? He talks about unthankfulness as being a respectable sin. He talks about four different kinds of pride, which he says are moral self-righteousness, theological self-righteousness, pride of achievement, and pride of an independent spirit. Have you guys ever thought of those things as being kind of like part of the package that comes with pride? Theological self-righteousness, they don't know what they're talking about. They don't open their Bible. Moral self-righteousness, look at the way they live. Pride of achievement, look what I've done. And then pride of an independent spirit. I don't need anybody. I got this thing. He also mentions selfishness. He mentions anger, which comes out in sins like irritability and resentment, bitterness. He talks about self-control, which he describes as a governance or prudent control of one's desires, cravings, impulses, emotions, and passions. So there would be a lack of self-control then that pushes us against having that governance or that prudent control of our desires, cravings, impulses, and emotions. How about some more? Judgmentalism. Look at them. It's unbelievable. Look at the life they're living. Look at the choices they make. Envy, gossip, slander. I'm just telling you this so that you can pray for them, brother. Happens a lot. Lying, which to us is just, sometimes we learn to fudge the truth to the degree that that just becomes our language, right? He mentions worldliness, which is being attached to, engrossed in, or preoccupied with the things of this 
temporal life. So these are all just respectable sins. These are sins that if you walk into a church building, you might step back and you go, man, I don't see any of that. Um, This place looks really cool. Everybody seems really sincere and genuine. There's no way that we would see any of these things pop out, to which I would say, well, I mean, you've only been here five minutes. You know, you need to spend some time with us to see these things pop out because they pop out, right? Paul helps us in the book of Colossians as we consider what repentance and action looks like. Because here's the thing, when Christ saved you, what was he saving you from? Have you ever thought about that? When Christ saved you, and we use the word save, what kind of imagery does that evoke in your head? Christ saved you from your sin. That's why I try not to use the language, which by the way is found nowhere in scripture, about accepting Jesus in our heart. That kind of happened, but what actually happened was that Jesus Christ saved you from the wickedness of your heart, which couldn't even accept Jesus until he changed your heart, right? So when we say Christ saved us, what, what, what does that even mean? Saved me? What do I need to be saved from? Your own sin? Absolutely. Yes, but more specifically, he was saving you from the God who cannot tolerate unrepentant and unredeemed sinners. And if that sounds intolerant and monstrous to you, then we have to go back to Jesus Christ. We've forgotten Jesus Christ who was sent by God to redeem sinners back to God, right? But after that moment of redemption, when our sin has been put to death on the cross, it still grows like weeds. It still grows like weeds in, like in, a, in just a beautifully manicured garden. We went to, uh, what was the name of the? Uh, yeah, the Worcester Arboretum, the Seacrest Arboretum. We went there yesterday because it was the best day of all time. And um, we love this place. And the way they do the gardens, they're all just beautiful. And you can like, take all these walks, kind of see all the different varieties of plants and trees that they have. It's amazing if you've never been there. Um, it wasn't looking so hot yesterday, right? We're just coming out of all the weather just coming out of all the snow. Um, it wasn't up to its standard, right, that we usually see it in. Um, and you guys know this, if you take a look at your own gardens right now, in your backyards, your vegetable gardens, your rose gardens, whatever they are, right, you know there's work ahead of you. With Christ's help, we can weed out our sin. We can put to death the death that is in us due to our sin. Paul helps us. He helps us in the book of Colossians in chapter 3, verse 5, when he says this. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put it to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Then he says, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, he says, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So he's saying, we got to put to death. We got to put off these things. We got to separate ourselves from these things. We got to take decisive action because gardening is hard work. Gardening is hard work. I know this. I know this because my wife told me it is. 
But that initial, that initial weeding, it's not just for the sake of weeding alone, is it? You're not just weeding because that's a sweet time on a Saturday afternoon. You don't just weed for the sake of weeding alone. It's for the sake of what? Planting. You, you're weeding for the sake of planting. So Paul doesn't just tell us in Colossians to, to put to death and to put off these things. He then goes on to say, hey, here's what you need to put on. You need to do this weeding, but you also need to do some planting, right? So that some beautiful things grow in place of where these weeds used to be. He says in chapter 3, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Remember who you are. You are a holy people. You are a beloved people. When Jesus looked at Peter after that betrayal, he was looking at a holy and a beloved dude. Why was there no condemnation in that moment? Why wasn't there any condemnation on Peter in that moment? Because Peter was the Lord's. That's why. But Peter had work to do. He said, put on then as God's chosen, holy and beloved ones, compassionate hearts. Look at what he says how to combat these sins. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And then he just finishes by saying, above all these put on love, which binds everything together. All this stuff that feels just, you know, discombobulated. When what we put in place of those things that we're putting to death is love, it binds everything together in perfect harmony. Jesus Christ died for your respectable sins that create the spiritual mold in your life. The sins you've committed and the sins you are going to commit today. Those sins of commission and omission. The things that you do that you know you shouldn't do and the things that you don't do that you know you should do. I can't believe I just got that out straight. This side of glory, you have no hope of perfectly keeping God's laws, but you do have hope in Jesus who kept God's law perfectly for you and forgives you when you don't. That's called grace. That's what the people of Israel experienced here as they wept bitterly and they took decisive action. They experienced God's mercy and grace. So when you repent, when you take action to turn from your sins, Jesus already has turned his face towards you. He's already in this space with you. You say, Ronnie, it is so hard because I'm so tempted. It's so hard to break patterns. I feel like giving up. I think you just described the Christian life to a T. A life of actual holiness that results from repentance in action. Man, holiness is not like these pictures that we, that we see painted from the 16th century where everybody's just sort of floating with the halo around them. Man, holiness is in the dirt, in the ground, fighting your sin, trusting in the Lord, weeping bitterly, going back to the Lord over and over again with remorseful and repentant hearts saying, I hate this sin. I hate this sin that just keeps clouding over me, that keeps scraping and scratching at me. I hate it so much. 
And you know what Jesus is doing? He's standing there going, you're my chosen guy. You're my holy dude. You're my beloved woman. That's insane. Because if you are in Christ, that is who is holding you in. Even while all that stuff is happening. Even when you're slow, slow in your action. Even right now with all the things that you haven't taken action on. If you have Christ, you have his mercy. You have his grace. So, let's learn to tremble a little bit more. And then put our repentance in action because Christ has redeemed our souls to have a beautiful sorrow before God over our sin. And the only thing that can come out of that is flourishing for you, for me, for everybody around us, for this church family, the importance of that we can never minimize. You hear me? Let's pray. God, we thank you for these hard words that get to the heart of our sin, of our necessity to confess, to repent, to see you as who you really are, as a holy and a majestic God. So God, we pray that we can respond the way Ezra responded, the way the people responded, as they wept bitterly over their sin, as they took decisive action, as they came back to you, as they renewed their covenant with you. Lord, help us to be people that do that over and over again. And Lord, for any of us that are out of practice with that, Lord, today is a new day. Today is a day of salvation for some of us that have never done that. So God, I pray that your spirit would speak to us right now through your word. Lord, that we would feel conviction, that we would have ears that would be attuned and attentive to your spirit, whatever he may be surfacing in us right now. Lord, you've given us Christ who's taken your wrath for us on his shoulders so that we can repent to you and we can be reconciled to you. Lord, I pray that this truth undergirds us as a church family. I pray for those that have not come into our church family in a way that repentance to you necessitates. I pray that you would change their heart this morning. I pray that they would listen, that they would be reminded of your grace and your love and your mercy for them and that we can welcome them in and enjoy the fellowship that we have as redeemed sinners that are still sinning but are not condemned any longer, but get to experience the love, grace, and mercy of Christ. Help these truths settle on us. Help them become a, a beautiful and a glorious weight on us as we experience the lightness that comes with being freed from our sin. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.